We look once again uh, for our scripture passage from the book of Genesis. This evening we'll look at chapter 34, chapter 34 of Genesis. Genesis 34, and I will read the entire chapter. Hear what God has to say to you this evening. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom he had whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, uh, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were <clears throat> with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the fields as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price and the gift and gift as you will, and I will give whatsoever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all the father's house. So Hamor, his son Shechem, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all of them who went out of the gate of his city and listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. 
The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you for direction as we look into your word. We know that there are things in your word that we find difficult, difficult to endure, difficult to understand. And so we ask for a particular blessing that that you give to us, O Holy Spirit, in understanding and grasping what it is that you have in your word. And we ask that you will show us this mercy because we request it of you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And together we say, Amen. We have lots of different ways in which we, we respond to things that are ugly and nasty, if you will. Um, we can see things in life and they shock us, the things that happen, the things that are around us. And we live in a world in which we are constantly exposed to, uh, to uh, uh, evil things, ugly things. And as we are exposed to those evil things and ugly things, so one of the things that we have to be careful about is that we don't get uh, uh, immune to those kinds of things. Uh, This morning's sermon, Felipe, uh, warned us of a way in which we can uh, have evil around us and end up not noticing how terrible that evil is. And so we need to to be aware of that. And so we we, we look at how we respond to these kinds of things, these ugly things in, in the world in which we live, And some of you come here to church and you come to escape that world out there, uh, to escape those ugly things, to escape that, uh, those awful, terrible things. You come here for peace. And then the crazy preacher reads to you Genesis 34. And you, you sit there and you ask yourself, why in the world is that in the Bible? There's, there's nothing good in there. Uh, it's all ugly, it's all shocking, it's all the kind of thing that you really want to push away from yourself. And yet we find it here in the scriptures. And if you came here tonight to feel a kind of peace, a kind of separation, a kind of escape, maybe even a sheltering from all those ugly things that happen in the world, I'm sorry, (laughs) that's not going to happen. We need to look at what happens here. And my hope is, as you hear this, both thinking about those things that happen in our world and the very things that are recorded for us in this text, I hope that all of you are horrified. That there's a sense in which you say, ugly, nasty, away from me with those kinds of things. I hope that you are horrified by horrified by the outside things, but horrified also by what we have as we look at, at this passage to us before. 
And I have to remind you that this is not the only passage in the Bible where evil and ugly and awful sinful things are portrayed for us. This is not the only place that we find us. We confront evil in lots of different places. And if the Bible didn't deal with sin and evil, if we didn't come here to deal with sin and evil, there would be no reason for us to have what we call a Christian faith. Because it's as Christians that we have come to discover the way in which God deals with sin and evil for his people and by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear the guilt and the punishment that goes to those who engage in sin and evil. So let's look at this text and try to make some sense out of it. And let's, first of all, look at the deed, the horrible thing that Hamor did. And then let's look at the dealing that followed from that horrible deed. And then let's look at the deathly, deadly results that came about from it. And then finally, let's see if we can't derive some lessons that can help us as we live in the midst of a world very much like what we see described in Genesis chapter 34. The first thing the text tells us is that Dinah went out and uh, uh, to, to see the, the, the women of the area. And if you were uh, a, an early reader of this text, you probably would be bothered by that. Now, you would be bothered by a single woman going out into a a place that she did not know and uh, uh, visiting, if you will, with with, uh, uh, other women. Uh, The expectation would have been that a young single woman uh, would not have gone out except with her brother. And so the early readers of this text would have uh, have probably raised their eyebrows about uh, uh, Dinah going out in this way. Uh, but when we come to the next person in the, in the text, it's this person Shechem. Uh, he's a prince. Uh, he's the son of the king, if you will, the leader of, of, the, of the town uh, of uh, Shechem. He's named after the city. There's no real reason why we can figure out why he's called Shechem and the town is called and the city is called Shechem. They seem to be the same thing. He is the son, as I said, of Hamor and Hamor is the one who arranged for Jacob to buy some of the land. We saw that at the very end of chapter 33. Uh, but Shechem is, is uh, described in this text as the most honored of all his father's house. I mean, this is a young man that when people looked at him, they said, there's Shechem. He's Hamor's son. And I suspect that they said, he's a good fella. Someday he's probably going to be the king and leader of us. And I'm comfortable with that. That's the kind of thing that we see with them. And someplace in Dinah's travels around the city, as she was seized by Shechem and raped, the text says, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And whatever the customs of the people uh, around Shechem were, uh, this kind of action is wrong. It's forbidden. His guilt is uh, his guilty of criminal behavior. And all the other things that this text tells us about Shechem, don't forget that. Don't let that slip away from you. He's a rapist. That's the way in which we describe him. That's the way in which the text presents him to us. We're told that Shechem loved the young woman, Dinah, 
And we don't know uh, if they had met before. We don't know any of those things. Moses, as he writes this, just says, give us those, those details. He doesn't do that at all. He simply points out uh, Shechem's deep affection for Dinah. And uh, in addition to, to loving her, having this deep affection for her, he seems to have treated her well as he's, after he had uh, taken her into his household, as he had uh, captured her, if you will. The text tells us that he <clears throat> spoke tenderly with her. Uh, we know that he took her into his house because when, she is, uh, uh, when her brothers come and uh, bring death to the city, one of the other things that they do is that they take Dinah away from Shechem's house. The conduct of Shechem is deplorable. And uh, if you aren't horrified by this, then you have to ask yourself a few questions about what it is that can horrify you. It's just, it's just terrible. There's no other way for us uh, to describe it. Uh, but uh, as I reminded you earlier, um, Shechem is just wrong. And we need to be careful that we don't in some way, uh, the way in which the text is portrayed for us, some way come along thinking that uh, Di Dinah was uh, responsible in some way, even if she was naive. Now, in the midst of all this, uh, Moses tells us uh, that uh, uh, Shechem's uh, affection for Dinah seems to be genuine because he goes after his father and he tells him he, he wants to have this uh, woman for his, for his wife. He tells her, he asks his dad that. Maybe, maybe it's wrong even to say that he, he asks it. It's almost, as you look at the text, it's almost like he goes to his father and makes a demand of his father, get this woman for me, for my wife. That's what he wants. And uh, his father accedes to this uh, request or command, whatever it is. Uh, and that's what he does. He goes and he negotiates uh, for the hand of, of uh, Dinah. And he goes in the way in which would be customary and ordinary for the fathers to make some arrangement. That was the common, typical way in which marriages were uh, put together in that era. Uh, that the fathers decided uh, who was going to marry whom in that kind of a situation. And, and in this situation, we see Jacob's response. And the, the, the description of Jacob's response is, in my mind, it's just puzzling. Um, Jacob reacts to the seizure and rape of his daughter in a distinctly understated manner. I mean, you men who have daughters, just imagine if someone told you that someone raped and captured your, your daughter, I mean, your blood would boil. You would have all kinds of things going through your mind about what I'm going to do with that guy when I get my hands on him. And Jacob doesn't seem to have any of those kinds of reactions. Uh, you know, we could speculate why. My speculation is, uh, as the first line of the text tells us, Dinah was the daughter of Leah. And that was her problem. Because Jacob has consistently, as we've looked at his life, not respected, I think, the, daughter, the children of, of Leah. You remember, when uh, he was afraid that somebody was going to attack him, Leah and her family got in front of Rachel and Joseph. Uh, so, so maybe that's why, why he did this. But, but Jacob doesn't show any of the common ways in which one would expect a father uh, to react to what is happening to them. 
Now we see the, the, the way in which, which Jacob responds, but then we contrast that with the way in which her brothers respond. I mean, the text is so very clear about it. It says that the men were indignant and very angry. I mean, they viewed uh, what uh, Shechem had done as a text as an outrageous thing. It's just something that, not, that should not be done. And uh, their anger, as we'll see, keeps on all the way through this passage. But the dealing comes about. Uh, Hamor seeks to get Dinah as the wife uh, uh, for Shechem, and he negotiates with Jacob, it seems, first, and then also uh, with uh, Jacob and his sons. And uh, in the negotiations, it does seem someplace that, that, that Jacob even steps back from the negotiation, and the sons come to take the, uh, the leading role in all of this. And... Uh, uh, when the dealing comes, it's interesting to see the way in which Hamor sets everything up. No mention of what, what Shechem did. No mention whatsoever of the rape, of the capturing of this young woman. None of that at all. None of those bad things are set up at all. Um, all that he says is that Shechem longs uh, for your daughter. But what he wants is to make some kind of economic settlement uh, with this Jacob and his sons. And he, he suggests uh, intermarriage uh, uh, between uh, the Israelites and the Shechemites. Uh, one will give their daughters to the others and there will be this kind of intermarriage. Now, now just for a minute, remember, why is Jacob on his way back from Paddan Aram going back toward Bethel. One reason why is because he was running away from his brother who told him he would murder him. The other reason is that he was sent to Paddan Aram to find a wife because his mother in particular, but also his father said, I don't want Jacob marrying one of those Canaanites like Esau did. And so they sent him far away to find a bride. Here is Hamor saying, hey, Jacob, <laughs> let's intermarry. I mean, the, the, the irony of it, uh, the, the folly of it, that uh, comes to us as we look at this text of the way in which all of these things are put together. Uh, the idea of intermarriage is clearly out of bounds for any of the children of Abraham. Uh, but Hamar goes further. He wants other kinds of economic things, offers to give land to be open for grazing, and they're going to be able to buy property. That's what uh, Hamar is offering to Jacob and to his sons. And it seems, uh, as you read the text, it almost seems like as, as uh, Hamar is there dealing with uh, Jacob and uh, Jacob's sons, that Shechem comes along and he, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's, he's impatient. He doesn't want these slow negotiations to go on. And so what does Shechem do? It seems like he, he interferes and says, hey, fellas, go ahead, ask me for a big bride price. And ask me for a big gift on top of that. These two things were common uh, ways in which uh, uh, weddings were, uh, marriages were arranged. The bride price uh, uh, was something that probably went to the father uh, of the bride and uh, the gift may have gone to the bride. Uh, it's not really clear always how these things uh, worked out. But <clears throat> he makes this uh, 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 offer and he, he, he's impatient to have this woman uh, to be his wife. 
and I think we have to be careful here, that in, in the way in which Shechem comes across as loving and wanting her now for his wife, that we don't forget what Shechem is. We don't forget what is fundamentally uh, at, at base in this text, what, what gets the whole story going, if you will. It is that uh, he is, uh, he's a rapist. So we can't forget that as we look at it. Uh, but as the text unfolds, uh, Moses points out that, that the sons of, of Jacob answer in a, the, the Shechem's request deceitfully. I think the statement, because he had defiled their sister, uh, reflects the thinking of the sons. That's not some kind of justification uh, that Moses puts in there as he records this uh, for, for us. I don't think that's what happens. Uh, uh, the deceit of the sons' uh, practice is, 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 uh, includes, I think, their, their intention to destroy the city, to destroy the men in there. I don't think this was just something that uh, popped into their heads one Thursday morning when they woke up. I think this is all a part of the deception. I think it's all a part of the plan. And, and the offer to give Dinah as a wife to Shechem on the condition of circumcision is just a dastardly act. Uh, we, we, we could be horrified at the rape, and we ought to be horrified at the rape. But my fear is we won't be equally horrified that the, that, that the sons of, of, of uh, Jacob offer this business of circumcision. What was circumcision? Well, you go back and you see what circumcision was. It was the sign that God had given to Abraham that Abraham was going to have a special relationship with him. It's a sign that the Israelites are different. They are Yahweh's people. They're Yahweh's. And they're not Baalists, for example, like all those people at Canaan. They take this, this sacred rite and they, they use it in, in, a, in a completely wrong, evil, sinful kind of a way. And so here is Shechem the rapist dealing with these people who show no respect whatsoever for the mark that God has given to them that they are his special people, that they belong to God and they belong to God alone. And we should, we should be bothered by that when we see this in the text. I suspect that those original readers were surely uh, bothered by it. And uh, I think it's, 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 it's something we need to see and, and get hold of uh, that... Uh, um, that not only do they, they, they talk about, about circumcision, but they also say that they will be willing to intermarry. Now, it seems that uh, Shechem is completely hoodwinked by, uh, by the sons of Jacob in their, in their deceit. And uh, uh, we can see this in the uh, way in which Moses describes it. After he gets this part of the deal, uh, what does Moses say? He didn't delay. He rushes off to the gate, and he's going to sell this, along with his dad, to all the men who uh, uh, gather at the gate. Uh, Shechem, the most honored of the house, is going to go and try to convince all the Shechemites that they ought to agree with this and, and engage with it. And they go to the gate because the gate is the place where economic and civil kinds of things were done. That's the place where trading, that's the place where uh, legal decisions were made. That's all that goes on there. And, and again, 
Shechem and Hamor present what is basically an economic reason to accept the offer of the Israelites. They assure the man that the land is big enough for them to have a place for Jacob and his flocks and herds. Uh, uh, they're described, they describe the Israelites as, as peaceful, and they're encouraged also to have intermarriage of giving their daughters in, uh, to the Israelites and taking the daughters in this way. Um, and the culmination of the deal is set out for us in these words. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours, only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. That's the clincher. Remember who Jacob is. He's the guy that was able to give 550 head of stock to his brother to kind of buy him off. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a farm, but if you've got 550 head of stock, you're not a poor farmer. You know, and Jacob didn't give all of his stuff to his brother. So Jacob's a rich man, and they see this, that all of this will be theirs, it will become theirs. And they're sold. Uh, uh, the Shechemites buy into the benefits of the deal, and they agree to be circumcised. And uh, uh, the statement that every male who went out of the gate of the city um, uh, means that everybody who lived in Shechem was the ones that were the ones who who agreed with this, and so they were uh, circumcised. As I said before, I think that Simeon and Levi planned all along to try to get their revenge on, uh, on the men of Shechem, and, and particularly Shechem himself. Uh, their description, deception in, uh, in making the deal with Hamar and, and Shechem uh, was in order to weaken the Shechemites so that they could go about doing with it what they did. And, and the men of the city uh, don't seem to have been expecting this kind of betrayal at all. Uh, they were uh, 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 in their homes, and uh, Simeon and Levi take their swords, and they go after them. Now, lots of people question, how is it that these two fellas could kill everybody in a city? And some say, well, probably they used their servants. I'm, I'm not convinced of that. I think uh, uh, Simeon and Levi did what they've been doing all along. They're sneaky. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so they sneak in, you know, and one guy's in his house and they sneak in and they kill him. And then they go to the other house and before the people of Shechem can get themselves together to go after these two fellows, the men are all dead. I think that's what they've done. And as we look at the text, it almost seems like the other brothers come stumbling along after this. And then they decide to, to, uh, to uh, 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 plunder the city. And again, I think that's, that's just wrong. I don't think that's what's going on. I think we have to see uh, the, the patterns of the sons of Jacob that come from Jacob himself. And just as Simeon and Levi had planned to kill the guys uh, and to take Dinah away from Shechem's house, uh, the rest of the brothers uh, planned to, to steal everything that's in the city. And, and as we see this unfold again, uh, it, it, it just strikes me that, that uh, uh, not only did they take the stuff, the wealth that was in the houses, not only did they take the animals and uh, uh, the livestock, but they also take the women and the sons. These are the women that they said they would not intermarry with unless the men were uh, uh, circumcised. And then the text brings us back and tells us how Jacob responds to all of this. And what is Jacob's response? He doesn't say, God, good for you fellas. You have, you have honored our name and you have brought uh, destruction on these people who did this dastardly deed to us. None of that. He doesn't say to them, how could you go and kill people? He doesn't say that. 
He says, you know, if those fellas, those Canaanites hear about this, I'll stink to them. And if they all get together, they could kill me and kill all that I have. Jacob is Jacob. He's worried about what? Jacob. Just as Jacob has been worried about Jacob in every story just about that we've seen about Jacob. He continues to be the kind of person that, uh, that we see him. And, and he laments this. Uh, he's sorry that this is, is, uh, is that way. And, and, and the text goes on. And Jacob makes this what I would call silly, if you will, response to all of this. And what do his brothers say? Should we let him treat our sister as a prostitute? And it almost at first seems like that's a righteous response. It almost seems like it's a good response, but I, I caution you about that. It, it, it may condemn Jacob's uh, uh, indifference to all of this, uh, but don't assume that the condemnation uh, of Jacob excuses the sons. Now, we looked at this story and tried to look at some of the strange things. And you may be sitting there and thinking, I'm not any more comfortable this than when you read it the first time. It's still a despicable story. I, 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 as I look at this, I can't see anything good in it. And perhaps that's true. There probably aren't many things good that we can see in this text. But let's try to look at it just a little bit and see if we can't derive some lessons from it. Can we derive anything from the life of this incident in the life of Jacob? And somehow we need to see that it's included in the Bible for a reason. We know that. We've all memorized 2 Timothy 3.16. We know what it tells us about the Old Testament. You remember that, don't you? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So somehow this text, in the mind of Paul when he writes to Timothy, is profitable, it's useful. So we've got to dig a little bit deeper. We've got to try a little bit more. And I do think it helps us. You were reminded this morning about the horror of the kingdom of this world and the way in which it can get into us. And if you ever had any doubts about the pervasiveness of evil, read Genesis 34. It's there, it tells us about it. It's almost like we could uh, look at the Paul's description in chapter three of Romans verses 10 through 12, uh, where Paul uh, quotes from uh, Psalm 14. It almost is like that's a commentary on this. Let me just read those verses from Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That describes Jacob. That describes Shechem. That describes Hamor. That describes all the sons of Jacob. No one does good, not even one. So remember the, 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 the pervasiveness of evil. Don't forget that. You were reminded of it this morning. You're reminded of it again. And that's not just because the preachers are little Johnny One Note. It is so bad. 
It is so pervasive that you need to be reminded again and again and again. And the Bible does that for us. But there are all sorts of things in this text that, that might tempt us to, to justify some of the behavior that's going on. And we have to be careful that we're not sucked into it. I didn't consult with Felipe, but he, he, he was right telling us that. Be careful that the kingdom of this world doesn't get you and pull you over into it. He warned us about that this morning, and that's something that we can see could happen as we look at this text. Those of you who are kind of romantic in your inclinations could be tempted to lessen the guilt of Shechem because of his protestations of love for Dinah. Rape is evil no matter what the circumstances. Shechem is a rapist. And don't fall in the trap that said, well, he loved her and he wanted her to make, his, make her his, his wife. He is a terrible person and he engaged in terrible actions. Now, some may see some justice in the son's angry punishment of the Shechemites and the entire city. And again, I caution you to be careful. Revenge may taste sweet, but remember what Romans chapter 12, let me read to you verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I can just imagine Moses as he recorded this, and he thought just a little bit about the vengeance that the uh, sons of Jacob were, were wreaking on the people of Shechem. And I just imagine that while Moses was writing this down, he thought, one time I saw a nasty Egyptian doing nasty things to an Israelite and I murdered that lousy Egyptian and I spent 40 years in Midian as a result of that. Moses wrote this down and he said, I understand evil, I am the leader of the Israelites, I am the leader of the children, the offspring of these people. So don't try to excuse uh, these at all. But how do we go on and reflect on this passage? And as you reflect on this passage, and one of the fears I, I had as I put this sermon together was that you would all end up saying, it's just hopeless. It's ugly, it's nasty, it's brutish out there. And so it's just kind of hopeless. And, uh, and not only as you look at uh, Genesis chapter 34, but, but you are exposed to this in the news. You, you, you hear about uh, rape and all of these things that are happening here. You live in greater Philadelphia, and you all know what happens. You expect uh, sometime uh, tomorrow morning that you will hear in the news, however you get your news, about whoever was murdered in the city of Philadelphia or its environs. You, you, you live in that kind of a world. It's, it's there. It's all around you. And uh, 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 first of all, don't let the pervasiveness of, of evil harden you. Uh, continue to be horrified by it. But 
I also plead with you and not to be hopeless in the midst of this. Uh, be horrified at uh, reports of rape and murder uh, that descend on us uh, week after week. Be horrified at the way in which some Christians take their Christianity, the very things that belong to them that should make them different, and they take them and they use them for economic benefits and for civil and political benefits. Be bothered by that. Be bothered that someone like the sons of Jacob uh, could twist something like circumcision or could twist professions of faith and their uniqueness as Christians and use them uh, for things that they ought not to use them. Don't lose your ability to hate sin. And as you see sin around you and you see the awfulness and the ugliness of it, as you, as you, as you feel almost the palpable character of sin around you in its public uh, uh, manifestations. Don't forget about personal sin. Sin is not just out there. Sin is not just something that crowds around us. Sin is not just something that bombards us from the outside. Sin is in here also. And so don't forget about sin coming in that way. As you hate sin, public and personal, though, again, I caution you not to fall into despair because there is good news. Again, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Felipe reminded us that the kingdom of Jesus is greater than the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is what we see daily in the news. And this morning, we were reminded that God was working out his plan through Esther, one who willingly compromised with the kingdom of this world. Don't be hopeless. Jacob and his sons, Israel, the people of God. God is working out his plan. God is taking these, these crooked sticks and drawing a straight line to the son of Jacob. The son that we sit here tonight and we say, for all the evil that I find in my own heart, for all the evil that I find around me, all the evil that's around and influences me and does things to me, it was out of the line of Jacob that Jesus Christ came. And he says, all of the evil that's in the hearts, all of the horrid, awful behaviors of my people, I will take their punishment upon Calvary's cross. And that Jesus came and he died upon the cross and he bore in his body the punishment that we deserved. And God raised him up victorious over the grave, the very clear consequence of wrongdoing. That's what God does. He takes bad things and makes it so that people don't look forward to the horror of sin, but to the hope of heaven. Some of you sit here and you say, yes, yes, my Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He took them away. He cast them into the depths of the sea. And maybe there are some of you here tonight that aren't really sure.
You see the sin, you feel it, you experience it, and you aren't really sure. And I plead with you tonight, trust that Jesus. Say to yourself, I believe that when Jesus Christ hung upon that cross, he was taking my sin. He was bearing the punishment that my sins deserve. And if you believe that, if you trust that when Jesus hung upon the cross, he took away your sins, you can have that hope of heaven. You can have that deliverance. And I don't want any of you to go out here tonight after we've talked about the horrid ugliness of sin without addressing yourself to the good news. Jesus came. Jesus died to take away the sins of his people and he rose triumphant over the grave. Sin and evil surround you and reside in your hearts. Please, don't ever get comfortable with it. Don't ever let it take up residence in you. Be horrified by sin. Hate it just like God hates sin. But don't be overwhelmed by it. It permeates the world. But those of us who belong to Jesus Christ need to remember the words that he speaks to his disciples in John 16. Let me read to you verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's our Jesus. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we acknowledge the sin around us and we confess the sin in us. But as we make that confession, we also want to voice this confession. I trust you, Lord Jesus, that what you did on the cross was on my behalf. And so together, we give you our thanks, Lord Jesus. And together we say, amen.